Greetings, Reasonable Doubts fans from the sandy beaches of Lake Michigan. Yeah, most of the year it's pretty rough up here in America's mitten, but for a few short months each year, the oppressive cold vanishes, the sun comes out, we step out of our igloos and into the light and get high on pure, unadulterated Michigan. Okay, basically what I'm trying to say is that we don't actually have an episode for you today. Fletch, Justin, the Dr. Professor, and I had planned on recording, but there was just too much summertime awesomeness getting in the way. But fear not. We're not going to leave you totally empty-handed today. What you're about to hear is a talk given by yours truly, Jeremy Bean, to CFI Michigan last May. The talk is entitled, Deceived into Thinking teaching students to think critically through the study of deception. It's about my own experience trying to teach critical thinking skills to college undergrads. It includes some of my musings on why critical thinking is important, what is important to teach in any kind of critical thinking class, and some of the unorthodox strategies that I've used to make this material more appealing to my students. I don't really consider myself a professional, more just a concerned citizen who's trying to get this information out there. So I'd be really happy to hear what you have to say. Please let me know what you think by leaving a comment at the blog, forum, or on our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with a new episode of Reasonable Doubts soon. I'm going to be talking about a class that I teach uh, class on critical thinking skills, and uh, and talking about strategies I've tried to employ in the class to to actually make this content accessible to the students, to make it something that they want to learn, and to make it memorable, uh, something that they'll actually pursue once they leave the classroom. And so, uh, for the vast majority of you who I'm guessing do not teach, uh, you might be wondering, well, what am I going to get out of this? Well, well, we are all teachers in some sort of way. We all have influence on the peers that we have around us. Many of you are parents. We all influence other people. And so hopefully there's something you can take away from this presentation today that, to help promote critical thinking in your social sphere. But I need to give the beginning of my story. How did I get involved in teaching? How did I get involved in uh, teaching critical thinking? And why did I choose this very strange, bizarre strategy, which is to intentionally teach my students how to deceive other people? Um, the background begins with me uh, in college, uh, about my sophomore year of college, taking my first set of methods courses and philosophy of education courses uh, because I wanted to be a teacher. And sitting through all these education courses, critical thinking gets thrown around like a buzzword quite a bit. Everybody's always chiming in on critical thinking. Oh, don't just teach students content. Teach them to think critically. We don't want students just mindlessly regurgitating information to us. We want them to be critical thinkers. And this, of course, sounded like a very good thing, something that was very important. The problem was I had no idea what critical thinking actually meant. And so, rather embarrassed, one day after class, I approached my teacher uh, to my philosophy of education class, who is actually the academic dean, and I just said, simply and straightforwardly, look, we've been hearing all this stuff about how important it is to include critical thinking skills in our curriculum. 
I'm not entirely sure I know what that actually means, and I'm embarrassed to bring this up in front of the rest of the class, but I'm not sure I think critically, and I'd like to know exactly what we're talking about. And he smiled, and he led me into his office and began photocopying pages uh, out of a book uh, by Richard Paul uh, called Critical Thinking because he knew I couldn't afford a book like that. And we began to have uh, regular meetings where we got together and we started discussing what does critical thinking mean? What are some of the skills? I started buying up as quickly as I could and consuming as many books, as many used books on critical thinking and informal logic uh, to kind of supplement my own education. So if you've heard this buzzword critical thinking and you're not exactly sure what it means, here are some helpful definitions just to start off with. This first one is from Edward M. Glasser. I'm probably going to screw up some of these names, so please uh, forgive me for that. Uh, this gentleman here uh, wrote one of, the only, one of the only kind of standardized tests that actually tries to gauge specifically critical thinking skills. And this was his definition of critical thinking. It's an attitude of being disposed to consider in a thoughtful way the problems and the subjects that come within the range of one's experience. It is also knowing the methods of logical inquiry and reasoning and some skill in applying those methods. And finally, this last paragraph, which incidentally is almost a direct verbatim ripoff from John Dewey. If you actually look on John Dewey's description of reflective thinking, he's taken this word for word. He's switched two or three words around here. Uh, critical thinking calls for a pers persistent effort to examine any belief or supposed form of knowledge in the light of the evidence that supports it and the further conclusions to which it tends. One of the things I like about this definition is that it emphasizes critical thinking as both an attitude and a skill. Critical thinking is a skill set. It is a set of procedures that you can go through when approaching some sort of issue to come to understand what is its rational underpinnings, what are, what are the arguments in support of this particular conclusion, and to evaluate those as to uh, whether or not they're sound, valid, or so on. But it is also, and this is very crucial, it is also an attitude. Critical thinking is not just a set of procedures. It's something uh, that if you are a critical thinker, you want to do this in your everyday life. You want to actually think about your own beliefs and about others. And so uh, uh, Glasser's definition does a great job of, I think, of capturing both of these aspects. Uh, one more definition, Richard Paul's definition of critical thinking. Uh, I have some beefs with Richard Paul's books on the subject, but I particularly like his definition and his, his focus on kind of the moral dimension to critical thinking. I think that's a real strong area of his. But he says, critical thinking is that mode of thinking about any subject, content, or problem in which the thinker improves the quality of his or her thinking by skillfully taking charge of the structures inherent in thinking and imposing intellectual standards upon them. The reason why I like this definition of critical thinking is because it emphasizes the kind of metacognitive aspect, thinking about your own thoughts. How often do we deliberately think about the quality of our own thinking? Most people think through an issue rather intuitively. They go with what feels right. What does their natural instinct tell them about the claim? To actually... Think about one's own thinking 
is to, as Paul says, is to actually know something about the structure of thought. What are the different elements of reasoning that you use whenever you're trying to reach some sort of conclusion? And once you've recognized what those elements are, you impose standards on them, meaning you try to make them the best they possibly can be. You try to improve your own thinking as time goes on. And so that metacognitive component is especially important. Again, this is why you can't teach critical thinking in a way that is merely procedural. It actually has something to do, I think, with our character. Um, It requires courage of us. It requires a certain degree of persistence. It requires many character traits, uh, kind of virtues of thought, not just skills. And so as I delve deeper and deeper into these critical thinking books, and, and books on informal logic, uh, there were several several procedures and skills that they were working on developing. First of all, analysis. Identifying the elements of an argument. What are the argument indicators? There's always language that cues you into the fact that reasoning is present. And not everything you find, not every editorial, not every article is going to actually contain reasoning. Sometimes there's a difference between an argument and a description of something. So recognizing that is important. What are the premises? What are the conclusions? Can you spot uh, the inferences? What's the structure of the inference? Can you identify the structure of extended arguments? There are horizontal patterns to reasoning, meaning that sometimes we have multiple independent reasons for supporting one conclusion. If one of those reasons happens to be wrong, it doesn't matter. Maybe the other reasons will still justify the conclusion. Sometimes what you get instead is one reason supports one conclusion, and that conclusion becomes a reason for some further conclusion, and we have a chain of argument. Sometimes we have reasons that independently on their own wouldn't support any conclusion, but when taken together, uh, they provide support for some conclusion. So those are conjoint premises. Identifying the structure of an argument, the structure of the argument determines some of its strengths, In part, it determines its strength and some of the vulnerabilities to an argument. So actually recognizing these patterns can be very, very important to thinking your way through it. What are the assumptions? Nobody ever lays out all of the thinking for you, and it's a good thing they didn't. Can you identify the implicit and explicit assumptions? What's stated and what's what's hidden from you? These are all some of the skills that are required in good analysis of an argument. But then after that, we need to evaluate. We need to learn to judge if an argument is valid. We need to judge if an argument is sound. And actually, I want to take a moment just now to ask you a couple of questions, because I've been amazed how many people, uh, how many of my students I get, but also just uh, uh, um, people at CFI talking to, uh, who actually don't know the difference between what a valid argument and what a sound argument is. So I don't want a show of hands. You don't need to speak out loud. This will be done in the privacy of our own mind. But I want to ask where nobody can be embarrassed or threatened and everybody can keep up the facade, but I just want to ask, (laughs) answer this in your own mind. Can you have an argument that is valid but not sound? Yes or no? Now, my second question is, can you have an argument that is sound but not valid? Yes or no? Can you have an argument that is valid but not sound? Yes, because validity has nothing to do with whether or not the premises are true. Uh, But you cannot have an argument that is sound uh, but not valid. 
Here's the difference. A valid argument, all that means is that the reasons support the conclusion. The conclusion follows from the premises. A sound argument is that it's valid and also that your reasons are true. But to be valid, uh, we could say uh, the moon is made of green cheese. I have a chunk of the moon, therefore I have a chunk of green cheese. None of those premises are true, but they, ought, they do support that particular conclusion. Uh, so judging the validity uh, or the soundness of an argument is important. We can't, because soundness requires knowing whether or not these premises are actually true, we can't always have that information. So oftentimes we need to uh, do the best we can given the information that's available to us. So part of evaluation is judging the plausibility of a claim or determining what standards of evidence we need to meet in order to justify a particular claim. Not all claims are the same. Uh, judging the credibility of a source, judging the credibility of an expert or a witness can be an important task in evaluation. And then, of course, the metacognitive aspect again. Can you analyze and evaluate arguments consciously and deliberately? Can you recognize your own biases and how they are coloring your thoughts, how they are influencing the questions that you are asking? Uh, what you will accept as a good answer. Can you actively seek out and fairly consider viewpoints that are contrary to your own? And can you have integrity? Can you use the same standards to judge your own beliefs that you would use to judge the beliefs of someone else, someone that you might disagree with? These are all sort of the tasks and the skills that belong to a good, fair-minded, critical thinker. When I first learned all of this in college, I found it, my first reaction was to find it empowering. I had the feeling, and I think a lot of people of my generation, and I think a lot of people just generally, have this feeling that we, we are being flooded with information every day. We have people who are pulling on us from all sides. We have people who are trying to get us to join their political party, people who are getting us to join their church, people who are getting, trying to get us to join their co-op or their special interest group or Center for Inquiry. And everybody has their own uh, talking points. Everybody has their pitch. Everybody has their facts that they're trying to press on you. And a lot of us feel that we, we, don't, know, we don't know where to turn. Uh, a lot of times our schooling has not equipped us to actually be discerning and to make good judgments as to who's telling us the truth, who's making a good argument, and who isn't. Learning these basic skills gave me confidence in my own reasoning ability. Realizing that I'm not a genius, realizing that I had a lot to learn, at least I could say I had a method now. I had a method now to follow. And so this wasn't just a, just a blind reaching, groping in the dark for the truth. And that's important. Without that confidence and reason, uh, the, some similar things tend to happen. First of all, uh, one can degrade very easily in this information overload. One can very easily give in to kind of a lazy relativism. That it's really just all claims are the same. And it's, it's just his point of view versus my point of view. And there's no way to judge who's, who's right or who's wrong. So let's just deal with it. Another attitude, too, is, is if you don't have confidence and reason, uh, you're, you're much more likely to try to make up that lack of confidence, that confidence gap, by giving in to some of the, the false certainty that's offered by a kind of dogmatic faith. 
I think both of those are, are, are risky possibilities when we don't ever learn to develop confidence in our own reasoning. But learning this, these skills really did have this kind of empowering effect. The second feeling that closely followed on the heels of that was kind of a feeling of betrayal, though. I found it amazing that I could get through 12 years of public schooling and two years of college and never have somebody just plainly lay out, uh, simply, explicitly, that there's an actually a method to good reasoning. I was forced to take classes on uh, self-esteem that told me what a good good guy I am and why I deserve to have so many friends and why I'm so smart. I didn't have even available to me uh, at my high school a, a introductory course on logic, let alone was I required to take one. And yet this should be part of the K through 12 curriculum and could easily be a part of the K through 12 curriculum. Some schools do have classes like this. A lot of, other, a lot of schools though, uh, they believe that they are implicitly teaching critical thinking skills throughout the rest of the curriculum. So they don't have to offer anywhere where you specifically are learning argumentation and informal logic. Now, it is most certainly true that good teachers in every subject are teaching critical thinking skills in their class. Good teachers are. But I don't think that's enough. Uh, as Richard Paul, uh, one, of these, uh, one of these guys promoting uh, cr different critical thinking skills would point out, how is it that you are going to implicitly teach a skill that we want almost by definition? We want it to be explicitly understood. We want it to be deliberate and conscious, conscious thinking through questions. Long story short, I devoted myself, I, I said that when I'm going to become a teacher, this is going to be one of my issues. So I got a job as a teacher. I started teaching at Kendall College of Art and Design, teaching philosophy and world religions. And I had my first opportunity to teach a summer class. And I made a big push for a critical thinking class. Uh, my department chair thought it was a great idea. And all my youthful idealism as a teacher was completely dashed on the rocks as I managed to create one of the most spectacularly boring classes ever, ever conceived. And I, I can't blame Alec Fisher, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring him up. I used, I used a really good textbook, a great textbook if you want for yourself or to share with your, uh, with your children or friends, is uh, Alec Fisher's Critical Thinking, uh, an introduction by uh, Cambridge University Press, full of great examples that you can work through. It teaches all these procedures that I've been laying out on the screen. The problem was it's a summer class. Everybody's stuck in there. I mean, first of all, obscenely, obscenely long summer class. I mean, we're there from 8.30 in the morning till, till noon, which is nobody can learn under those conditions. But it's beautiful outside. You can look outside in the clouds and everything. And I have these kids going through endless procedures. Put arrows around your reasons. Circle your argument indicators. Bracket your conclusions. We're doing these little webs of how the structures of the arguments relate. And it is just tedious and boring. And quite frankly, a lot of it's impractical. When the students say, hey, do you put everything in arrows? And do you bracket everything every time? I have to go, no, I don't. That would be insane. There's no freaking way I would do that. But you need to learn this, so you're going to do it. A lot of the examples are unrealistic. You could tell that they've tailored them to fit into this rather unnatural process sometimes that they're teaching. And beyond that, it's too narrowly focused on logic. One of the things I began to appreciate just from 
um, being a little bit more aware of the of uh, psychology, but also from the skeptical movement, from reading Skeptical Inquirer, from reading people like Michael Shermer, uh, Skeptic Magazine. One of the things that I was beginning to really appreciate was just how often our thinking is not directed consciously. Uh, oftentimes we come to a conclusion for reasons uh, that are, are often uh, unavailable to our conscious introspection, and we later rationalize. So it seemed that there were cognitive biases that had a, as much of a role to play in why we are deceived as the logical fallacies that I'd be teaching in class, uh, but that these weren't being addressed. So I had to rethink, how are we going to do this? I started looking at all my books, trying to find more realistic examples, trying to find any way possible to sex up my class and make it interesting, something that people would pay attention to. And I came across this book, Art of Deception, by Nicholas Capaldi. I'm sure that's not how he pronounces it, but that's how I butchered it. I'm going to read for you a paragraph out of this, the beginning of this book. With regard to teaching students how to challenge arguments in a constructive and rewarding way so as to deepen comprehension, I have employed a novel device. In addition to presenting an organized approach to the subject, I have written this book from the point of view of one who wishes to deceive, mislead, or manipulate others on the assumption that it takes one to know one. And I have found that people are able to detect the misuse and abuse of logic if they themselves are masters at the art of deception. I actually never read anything else from this book. I stopped at t page 12. I'm sure it's interesting. I've looked through the contents. It looks great. But I've never read anything else. I never actually used that to design my curriculum. It was just that idea in and of itself really sparked a lot of thinking. I started thinking, what would evil Jeremy be like in class? <laughs> What if we did this the complete opposite way instead of saying, hey, look, it's, a, it's virtuous to think critically and put this on display. What if instead I taught them, no, this is how you manipulate. This is how you get your way. I pitched it to my department chair, and she kind of sat back and looked at me for a little bit and said, all right, we'll give it a shot. And so I uh, drafted this rather aesthetically unappealing flyer, but put it up. The Art of Deception, an unorthodox approach to critical thinking. It's a new summer class. You can't read it from down here, but the, the, the flyer pitches, uh, it says, uh, learn to scam anyone out of their money, from the little old lady to the high class stock market investor. Learn to fake psychic readings and speak to the dead. Win every argument, even when you are wrong. Carry out a UFO crop circle or paranormal hoax. Detect deception in the media, in media, politics, science, religion, relationships, and in your own very mind. And outcome the con artist and expose deception and delusion and fraud in your community and in your society. So I got everybody in the class. Uh, a lot more people signed up for a class like that. A lot of people were intrigued. What exactly is going on? I later found out I had certain students who their other professors wanted to be spies. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to learn. They didn't want to ask me what I was teaching, but they wanted to learn what, what, what exactly is he talking about, which was great because I definitely played that up then. I'd, you know, Before class would happen, I'd look around and I'd look out of the hall and then close the door and just be like, all right. You know, as if like, all right, now, now that every, the coast is clear, we're going to share this information. First day of class presenting the syllabus, I told them, 
I told them that, you know, I'm going to be teaching this class in character. I don't actually really think this way, <laughs> but I'm going to pretend I'm going to, I'm going to play this role because I think it's going to make it more fun for you guys, and I, I think it's going to help make some of this content stick. And so we, we ended class after going to the syllabus, and when they came back the next day, the very first thing we started on uh, was one of my case studies in credulity, we called them classical scams. Now, I need a volunteer. I need two volunteers, so raise your hand if you'd like to be a volunteer. Don't just walk up. I'm not going to choose you. <laughs> All right, you can come up. And uh, all right, no, it's fine. No, no, oh, okay. I see how it is. All right, you can come up. And that guy that I've uh, never seen before in my life. Uh, <laughs> shut up. All right, well, since you so rudely invited yourself up, you're going to go second. So just, I mean, uh, dude I've never seen before, please uh, come up here. Have you ever seen this before, the three-card Monty? No. No? All right, well, we're going to do a little game. It's actually pretty easy. Uh, you see here I have, a, I have a 10, I have a 5, and then I have the Ace of Diamonds. You're going to try to follow the Ace of Diamonds. Okay. And I'm going to throw these around, okay? So watch very carefully. Ace of diamonds is on the bottom. Okay. Right? Which one do you think it is? Right here. All right. Oh, he got it. Ace of diamonds. All right, so it's not so bad. Do you think you want to put some money on it? Sure. All right. Got a dollar? Uh, yes. All right. Do this again. Let's see, ace is here. Okay. okay, see it. Do a little bit faster this time. Okay, you got it. You're better than I thought you would be. So, <laughs> take take the uh, take the money and get right. out of here. All right, your your turn. Are you ready to Are you ready to put some money on this? You don't? Okay. Well, can, can you loan her a buck? All right. Well, we'll just pretend that we put money on this. All right? You ready? For what? For the three-card Monty. All right. Watch it. You see where the ace is? Okay. You know where the ace is? All right. All right. Where was it? Right there. Ace is right there. Okay. Well, let's try it one more time. All right, see where the ace is? Mm -hmm. Okay. No, see if you were betting money, you would have lost, but thank you for volunteering. All right, here's how it works. You probably, you probably saw it the first time when I messed it up. But here's, here's what you do. The trick with the three-card Monty is that you have the ace and you hold the other card in the same hand. And when you first do the demo, you just drop the ace, or you just drop the ace down. Then, when you do it again, you maintain eye contact. Tell them it's going to be a little faster this time. And when you flip it over the second time, you use the momentum of the turning of your hand to actually toss the card on top down. It's a misdirection. They've seen it wrong. It's something you can learn in 10 minutes, and so it's the first activity we start in class. They get into class all groggy at 8:30 in the morning, and I say, "Hey, you're going to learn how to perform classic street cons." 
Before you know it, they're screwing their boyfriends and girlfriends out of, out of free lunches because they've learned the three-card Monty. So we go through a series of scams, the three-card Monty, the matchbox game, the shell game. Uh, and then uh, what I do is I use, uh, use this book, Truth, Knowledge, or Just Plain Bull by Bernard M. Patton. Patton has his six, six-part anatomy of a fraud, including the mark. The mark is the person who, uh, who's being chosen uh, or, or self-selects themselves for the con. Then you have the incentive, which is what's, what's the reason to actually do this? You know, the chance of actually making a cheap buck. Then you have the shill. That's who Justin was. Justin is the shill. He's in on it. He's going to win to give the illusion that the trick will actually work. Then you have the switch. This is when the object of value is replaced uh, or the, the actual trick of the con occurs. In this case, the switch is when I throw the top card instead of dropping the bottom one. Then you have the pressure. The pressure is whatever keeps the person from thinking rationally at that moment that I might actually be conned. The pressure might be all the social, all, all the observers around that are putting social pressure on them. Uh, uh, the threat of being embarrassed. The pressure can be a lot of different things. Then you have the block. Once the person figures out they've been ripped off, how do you keep them from exacting revenge? In this case, the block would be is that you know doing the three-card Monty street, uh, street con is, is a crime. You can't go tell the cops uh, that you've been cheated in an illegal gambling activity. Uh, that's not going to work. Or the block can just be time. By the time you actually uh, round up your boys and come to, uh, come to beat up the con artist, he's, he's long gone. And we go through several different cons this way. And in fact, we actually start uh, talking about major events, such as uh, one of my favorites, the, the pump and dump, the, a con where you get a reputation as a marketing guru, you buy a ton of cheap stock, then you offer investors a tip uh, that these stocks are about to get hot, and as everybody drives up the prices of the stock, right, you sell them, which is not too uh, unlike what we saw happening with Enron or some of these other companies. Or we talk about the Ponzi scheme. We talk about pyramid schemes. We talk about real-world cons that they, they would have witnessed in the news, but maybe they don't understand exactly how they work. And then, as, is, uh, as we always do in our class, we ask, how can we actually make this better? We try to get step imaginatively into the role of the deceiver and see, how can we improve this? How were some of these people found out? Uh, how did Charles Ponzi get caught? The Ponzi scheme is where investors promise a huge return, uh, or the Ponzi scheme is somebody uh, promises investors a huge return on their money, and then they pay off uh, the original investors with new investors' money. But no, no, real, no real money is ever being made. There's no real profit being circled around. Charles Ponzi was, was busted because his promises were too good to be true. This got reporters looking into his past and figured out he was a con man. So we ask, how could you avoid detection in this way? How could you build a better con? And we look at people like uh, Bernie Madoff. Right? Early in his career, he gains a reputation as being an honest businessman, helping to fight the culture of Wall Street. He's known for his uh, philanthropic work. He donates millions to charity. He's the former president of NASDAQ, for Christ's sake. Ends up swindling $50 billion from investors, and most people never saw it coming. Why? Because he set up a sophisticated set of hedge funds to feed money into his scheme, and he didn't promise outrageous returns. He didn't, not only did he not do that, he also wooed government regulators, anybody who could catch in on what he was doing, 
uh, he made sure he got on their good side. So we examine these real-life cons to actually illuminate how deceptions work. Now, this first week, uh, when we're talking about classic cons, is in itself, it's almost my con in the class. We never do anything as fun as that ever again, where, where we actually, in the class, where, where they're learning how to, how to perform these street cons. Their homework is to design their very own, uh, their very own swindle. And in fact, everybody does homework on that day, which is amazing. <laughs> class never gets that cool again, but this is, in a sense, this is my hook. This is how I'm hooking them into the class. Part of the class is, is again, creating that feeling that you're, you're being let in on something. You know, it's actually a privilege for you to be here and to be learning this stuff. You're learning things that some people might not want you to know, things that your peers definitely don't know, and things that can be empowering. In this case, empowering for evil. But you can clearly see the relationship between understanding how human psychology works and how people are deceived and the power that can come from that. The problem with people like Madoff is, right, is it takes a lot of effort. For all that effort he put into it, he probably could have made legitimate money. Uh, and you risk getting caught. But you don't always have to do uh, something illegal to dupe somebody. In our next set of case studies in credulity, we look at manipulation in the marketplace. We look at the subject of behavioral economics. Behavioral ec economics studies how people actually make economic decisions. And hint, hint, it's not as perfectly rational, self-interested people all the time as our economic models would have us assume. Now, we look at the social, cognitive, and emotional factors that actually sway economic decisions. And for this, we go over a great book, a Predictably Irrational by Dan Airely. I just want to point out that part of the way we do this class is uh, they get uh, each week one of their readings is from some major you know, either classic work on critical thinking or something new on the market. So by the time they've left the class, they've been exposed to a dozen really good books on how to think critically. Hopefully they've developed an interest in and, and will hopefully pick up some of them after the class is over. Dan Early uses this example. This was before iPads and e-readers were the rage, but here's, here's an example of a, of a real ad from TheEconomist.com Pretend that you like The Economist magazine and you'd be willing to pay a lot for it. I'm going to give you three options. Do you want just the online subscription for $59, a one-year subscription to the online journal? Or would you like a print subscription for $125? Or you can also get a print and web subscription for $125. How many of you would take the first option? Okay, if assuming you like The Economist and you had enough money to pay on these. How many would take the second? Nobody. How many would take the third option? Roughly equal to the, to the first group. Nobody's taking the second option. Uh, and that's exactly what The uh, Economist found. Nobody wanted to get the paid subscription or the print subscription when they could get the print and the web subscription for the exact same price. Why would you pay the same price and get less value for your dollar? Absolutely ridiculous. In fact, if you were looking at this, you would say, they must be idiots. Who would put why would they even put that up as an option? The reason why they put that option up there is if they didn't have that third dummy decoy option, 
Here's the figures we would get. If they just offered the economist.com subscription for $60 and the print and web for $125, you'd find 68% of people taking the cheaper option as opposed to 16% before. 32, so much less, fewer people will take this, uh, the, this option, the print and web subscription, than when we have the decoy option. 84% will take it when the decoy is there. Only 32 will take it when the decoy isn't there. The value is no different, but that dummy option somehow skews people into this second choice, and TheEconomist.com makes a lot more money. This is called the decoy effect. It works because uh, when our, our perception, when we draw comparisons, our brains do not judge by some objective standard. We always judge things in relationship to other things. As this chart explains, the, the dot in the middle is exactly the same size, but you see it as larger over here and smaller because of how we are comparing it to, uh, to the other doubts that encircle it. This is a trick of perception, but even when we are, when we are evaluating things mentally, there's similar phenomena going on. If you have two similar but, but fairly different uh, options, and you don't, they're, they're about equally satisfying to you. Do you want to choose attribute one uh, or attribute two? Do you want to choose A or B? If there's nothing really uh, tipping the scales, you throw in this decoy option. So we have uh, A here, and then we have the decoy A. Well, now the decoy gives a frame of reference by which to judge A as being superior. And then this gives A as superior, becomes superior to B. So you can actually... If you're very smart, you can, you can trick somebody into making the purchase you want them to make. Restaurants often will not, will not sell their most expensive item on the menu, but that's fine because their second most expensive item will go through the roof as soon as they introduce some sort of decoy. Um, Williams-Sonoma, the bread machine, the, this, this bizarre contraption uh, that, that will cook fresh bread for you and prevent you from going to a bakery and getting the same thing for about the same money. Um, when they first introduced the bread machine for, uh, for $275, nobody bought it. So they hired an economist, a marketing firm, to tell them, well, well, how, do we, how do we sell more units of this? And they told them the most counterintuitive advice you'd ever hear. Create a new bread machine and price it 50% higher. Well, it's insane. We're not selling the one we have. As soon as they did that, as soon as they created the decoy, sales of the original went through the roof. The decoy effect works. So when we teach this in when I teach this in class, I say, "Hey, you want to sell your artwork? <laughs> Not selling your most expensive artwork. Well, take something, maybe a, a, a piece that you actually really like and have a hard time parting with, and you know, crank up the price and put a similar piece right next to it and make it cheaper, easily." Another one Dan Airely has, this actually works with physical appearance. Uh, if you were going to judge uh, which person is more attractive, person A, a here or person B, uh, you know, maybe you wouldn't have a lot to judge by it. But if you, in, if you include a decoy A, again, this makes the real A seem more attractive and suddenly you'll choose them. So I say, hey, having a hard time getting a date? Find one of your friends that's like you in just about every way, but maybe a little bit dumber, maybe a little less attractive. Don't tell them that's why you're choosing them, and get, that, get them as your wingman. 
We also talk about in, in our business unit information asymmetry, how uh, when, when somebody has more information than you, like a realtor, how that can, uh, uh, can be used to manipulate. Risk aversion, our natural aversion to risks, uh, and uh, how that works into things like uh, pricing things at zero or, or offering things for free. We look at arousal. We look at the effects of white-collar crime, um, workplace theft, and consumer fraud. Uh, and, and what damage that does to, uh, to us all, really, by driving up uh, prices. We study a, broad, a very wide range of ways that we are deceived every day in economics. Uh, and what they learn, this is one of their first exposures in the class to the idea that it isn't all rational. It isn't all just the way you think. That you are being manipulated by very subtle influences, often that are below the level of perception. But you can learn about these things. We find out ways uh, that we can discover these uh, and perhaps, perhaps uh, become better consumers because of it. Uh, case studies and credulity, one of our next units is group psychology. I, I'm running very low on time, so I'm actually going to skip this particular part. But uh, one of the things that we learn uh, by studying just some of, the, uh, some of the classic studies in social psychology uh, we give students a chance to learn how much their own thinking is influenced by their group identity. The importance of gaining outside perspectives, the value of dissent. But of course, because we're teaching in the deceptive frame, I always turn things on its head. So we talk about, you know, if you want to impose conformity on a group, make sure you always stop a dissenter immediately. Any dissenting opinion, police. Because the presence of, if a dissenter has one social supporter in a group, the entire group's ability to think more critically goes way up. So we say stop at the center at all costs. Or uh, the opposite, if you want to break conformity in a group, if you want to go in and twist a group's mission to your own desires, don't dissent at first. Go in, build yourself up some uh, idiosyncrasy credit, uh, which is you've, you've conformed enough and you've made yourself very important and invaluable to the group that you're actually given a little bit of leeway to dissent. And make sure that you change things uh, without depleting your idiosyncrasy credit too much or you've gone too far. So we, you know, the deception frame, we always turn things on its head, making it seem more spooky. Also spooky, our next unit, we look at the paranormal. And uh, one of my favorite examples from this, of course, is the full moon effect. You know this, right? When the full moon is out, strange shit happens, man. I've seen stuff you wouldn't believe. You know, when, when the full moon is out, uh, ambulance drivers go on more calls. Emergency wards admit more patients. Firefighters and policemen, they go on uh, more calls. And people swear by this. And when I inevitably tell them that, that this actually doesn't happen, this isn't real, I get people who are volunteer firefighters, uh, in my class who are, or who have, like I have, worked in adult foster care settings and that sort of thing, saying, no, no, you don't know this. I've seen this. I've seen this happen. Yes, I know. You're an intelligent person, and you've seen it happen. But we're all intelligent people here, and we all get easily fooled. In 1996, there was a, a meta-study of over 100 peer-reviewed articles studying this lunar effect and found that there was no significant change during a full moon of any of these factors not of the homicide rate, traffic accidents, 
crisis calls to police or fire stations, domestic violence, birth of babies, suicide, major disasters, casino payout rates, assassinations, kidnappings, aggression by professional hockey players, <laughs> violence in prisons, psychiatric admissions, agitated behavior in nursing home residents, assaults, gunshot wounds, stabbings, emergency room admissions. The truth is those wonderful things happen all the time. Why do we then mistakenly believe that it's linked up to the full moon? Well, because of the post hoc fallacy would be a logical way of explaining this. Post hoc ergo propter hoc is where we assume that just because one event follows another, that the two must be causally related. Event E directly followed event C, so event C must have caused uh, event E. And we know that's not necessarily the case. It doesn't have to be that way. Correlation doesn't equal causation. But that tendency, that tendency for post hoc reasoning is very high. Uh, it's also related to another phenomenon, a cognitive bias, a confirmation bias. It's a type of selective thinking where we tend to notice and look for what confirms our own beliefs uh, and we ignore or we just don't, we, we don't look for, we don't actively seek out evidence that might contradict our own beliefs. It's a quite a natural tendency as well. So with the full moon, crazy stuff is happening all the time. Crazy stuff is happening on a half moon. Crazy stuff is happening on a full moon. Crazy stuff is happening on a quarter moon. Crazy moon is a uh, crazy moon. Crazy stuff is happening all the time, but when it happens on that day with the full moon on it, you have something to associate it with in your mind. You have something to pair it up with. Wow, there's a full moon tonight. The next time something crazy happens and it doesn't and there isn't a full moon, there's nothing notable about that. It's just, you know, more of life's weird stuff. Or <laughs> even worse, it might not be a full moon, but you might say Ooh, is there a full moon out? And just saying that deepens the association. The post hoc fallacy is uh, the basis of most of our magical and superstitious thinking. But there's other phenomena related to this too. Uh, a couple years ago, for some reason, a teen uh, wanted his hat back at Six Flags and he scaled a couple of fences, uh, got into the Batman ride uh, to get his hat back and promptly had his skull kicked clean off his shoulders, uh, decapitated at an amusement park. It was very violent, uh, very brutal, and teenagers and young adults love hearing about it. Um, I, I myself... Uh, narrowly avoided being involved in a roller coaster accident also. Uh, just after I got off a, an accident at Michigan Adventure, uh, while I was working with an adult foster care group and had a resident with me, two rides later, um, the, the twister broke down and several people were suspended uh, upside down for hours, which if I was there with, a, with the resident would have been very terrible. So I can tell you from experience that this is frightening stuff. So it might be natural for a parent to say, no, you know, Johnny comes in and says, hey, look, Robert's dad, he's going to take us to, to Six Flags. Uh, can I go with him? <laughs> no way, Johnny. There's no way I'm going to let you go there. Those rides are dangerous. Go ride your bike. <laughs> you know, the statistics, the odds of you getting severely injured, a child severely injured while riding a bike are so much higher than the odds the last thing you should do, you should, yeah, go do the Twister, do the Gravitron, do them all. Just stay off your goddamn bike. <laughs> but 
Because terrifying news stories are more psychologically compelling, because they are called to mind more readily than just the average disasters that happen every day, we overestimate their true risk. This is called availability error. And you can see how this plays, again, in with the full moon effect. Uh, something creepy and mysterious like the full moon is something that it's, it's unusual. It's very psychologically compelling. It's definitely memorable. And so when you're looking for explanations for some sort of bizarre phenomena, you're going to call something like that to mind much, much quicker. Confirmation bias and availability error can work together to reinforce paranormal beliefs. Um, who's this guy up here? Uh, David Blaine? I can't tell you how many times I hear people say about a magician, David Blaine or Chris Angel or one of these guys, that, that uh, okay, yeah, most of it's tricks, but that one, that one, that had to be real. That had to be real magic, right? Because you can't explain it. It must be real. Uh, usually, if you ever do, if you ever do a, see a really spectacular trick and you find out how it's done, then you go, oh my God, that was so simple. I can't believe I didn't come up with that, right? But in our minds, for some reason, the, the bizarre and the mysterious magic uh, seems to be a more easily recalled explanation to the brain than just ordinary activities. Let's do another experiment. Um, this one you guys can all join in. We're going to test a hypothesis together. I have these, these cards here. Uh, there's something on the other side of these cards. <laughs> and uh, just wanted to make sure everything was set up right. And if a card, here, we're going to test this hypothesis. This isn't necessarily true. We're going to test the hypothesis. If a card has a vowel on one side, it has an even number on the other. All right? I want you to tell me, with the minimal number of cards turning over, how can we most efficiently test this hypothesis? With as few cards as turning over, how can we make sure that this is the rule? Which cards would you turn over? Four? A and four? A and seven. You guys are too smart. Uh, you threw me off. Almost always people say A and four. All right. I see how it is. So you don't get any credit for being clever. The rest of you, no, thank you for sharing that. It's very reliable. I've done this a couple years in a row, and it, it never fails. Usually everybody picks A and four. Uh, and the reason is it's confirmation bias again, right? We want to test the hypothesis by looking for a confirming instance of it, right? And since A is a vowel and 4 is an even number, and that's what we're looking for, we check both of those out. Now, as you've put together, 4, does, it doesn't matter. You don't need to check 4, right? Because even if it, even if it uh, does pan out, even if there's a vowel on the other side, um, you can, you can, it's redundant. At that point, you're just confirming the rule that you've checked with A. Uh, and if it's, if it's not, if there's a consonant on the other side, it doesn't disprove our hypothesis either, right? Because it says, uh, if you have a vowel, there will be an even number. It doesn't say that every even number has to have a consonant. As many of you pointed out, though, crucial is checking seven. And most people never think of checking that last card. Why? Because that's a disconfirming instance. That's where we're looking to see, ooh, 
checking if, if, there's, if there's an uneven number, if there's a vowel on the other side, we've disproven our hypothesis. We've found a disconfirming instance. So that will actually, that's one of the most important cards to flip over in this scenario. But usually people won't figure out that's what you need to do. Again, it's another instance of confirmation bias. It's also part of common fallacies, common logical fallacies. Uh, here's a great one. If I get the flu, then I will experience cough, fever, and chills. I am experiencing cough, fever, and chills. Therefore, I have the flu. Most people, more than two-thirds of people, will see this as a valid argument. But it's actually a fallacy. It's called affirming the consequent. It's really easy to see why that's not a valid argument if you have a little bit of training. If all you have to do is think of a counter instance, take the same form and say, all right, uh, if it is Wednesday, then the banks are open. The banks are open, therefore it's Wednesday. You do a counter instance and it seems completely obvious when you look for disconfirming evidence how that can't be valid. But again, that tendency to look for what supports our belief, to just look for the confirming instances is very strong. Think of how easy, that's, that's logic 101, and yet it's very hard to see through unless you have that training. How do you correct for this? Confirmation bias and availability error. Always entertain multiple hypotheses or explanations. Always ask, is there something else that could explain this? So what we do in class is we, we go through similar uh, experiments to that one you saw with the card where, we, where they have to find their own hypotheses. They have to generate a hypothesis for the pattern that they are seeing. And half of the class is given directions that just tell them to do that. And the other half of the class has the same directions with just this line on there. Is there something else that could explain this? Make sure you look for two explanations. Uh, make sure you find two hypotheses that could explain the, the data. That half who gets that instructions, they always get it right. They never fall for, uh, they never get the wrong hypothesis. It gives a very recognizable sign to the class uh, what a difference this can make. Simply looking just Developing the habit of thought to look for disconfirming instances. Of course, in the deception frame, it also goes to show why it's so important to, uh, to reinforce a bad idea. Every time something happens that you can even the slightest bit tweak, fit into, your, into whatever, whatever particular claim you're trying to pitch, no matter how remotely related it is, do it. Keep on making those associations. Keep on confirming what people already believe. All those examples, or most of them anyways, this is hard to see, uh, was taken from uh, this book by Theodore Schick and Louis Vaughn, How to Think About Weird Things, Critical Thinking for a New Age. If, if, you, if you only check out one of these books that I'm sharing tonight, uh, or if you want the most bang for your buck as far as a critical thinking book that concerns itself with science and psychology and the paranormal, uh, this is the book to go to. Don't get it confused with Michael Shermer's uh, Why Do People Believe Weird Things? It's not a bad book, but it doesn't even come close to being as comprehensive in scope and as detailed in the methodology that it presents as this one. This is a really fantastic book. Yes, it's called How to Think About Weird Things by Theodore Schick uh, and Louis Vaughn, I believe. Yes. I'm going to have all these. I'll do a little show and tell. I'll lay out all these books up here. Don't walk away with them. But 
Also in class, so I'm like very out of time, so I'll just rush right through this. Also in class, we do, uh, we test the students for ESP ability. We go through a series of these, the Zener deck, uh, cards for detecting psychic ability. And we no doubt find that some of the students in the class actually can do better than chance. And some of them do much worse than chance. They seem to have a reverse ESP. <laughs> and then just showing them basic statistics. Look, this is going to happen. You plot this out on a bell curve. Uh, and you know we're going to get a couple of people in any, in any trial are going to be scoring seven. A couple of people are going to be scoring uh, you know, three. And we're going to get that kind of variance. And it's, it's completely natural. We also teach them uh, cold reading. I haven't found a suitable class exercise for this one yet uh, because if they practice on each other, they all know the, the gig, but I'm certainly not going to tell them to go out and speak to their friend's dead grandma or anything like that. So, But we do, we rehearse the cold reading technique. We watch uh, carefully selected excerpts from a wonderful South Park uh, where where they, uh, they take, uh, what's that guy's name, uh, Edward... John Edwards, they take him to task. Excellent, excellent episode. The rest of it's incredibly racist, though. So I'm like on the play pause really, really <laughs> carefully on that one. Other topics we cover in the class. Deception in the media, how sources, uh, the sourcing of news in a fast-paced 24-hour news cycle, or pressure from advertisers and interest groups, or deceptive political framing uh, influences us as to, uh, and deceives us as to, as to the real state of affairs. We look at deception in medicine, how fraudulent alternative health claims work, uh, uh, why uh, due to the natural variation of human illness and the placebo effect, why we can't just trust personal testimonials. And what, what, are, what are the uh, values of uh, double-blinded uh, controlled clinical trials uh, as opposed to other forms uh, like case studies or animal studies, that sort of thing. We evaluate how reliable they are. We also do a week on conspiracy theories. Uh, we look at anti-vaccination conspiracies. Uh, we look at the 9-11 conspiracy. Uh, I know many people would put the anti-vax in natural health. I think it's actually ballooned out to a full-fledged conspiracy theory at this point. Uh, we look at the 9-11 conspiracies. Uh, we look at how selection of evidence. I mean, have, have you guys watched Loose Change? Have you watched that without a guide debunking it? My God, that's persuasive if you don't have the other side saying, well, they messed up with their clip here. They didn't show you the other side of the building. They told you the melting point of metal, but they didn't tell you the point at which its structural integrity goes basically down to zero. Um, if you don't, if they're just selecting evidence and presenting one side and no counter evidence at all, it's only natural that intelligent people would be, and people who tend to be more free thinking and aren't just conformist, it's only natural that somebody might fall for that stuff. But once you provide the other side, it's not so compelling. And then we look at just the role that plain old paranoia plays in these conspiracy theories as well. Uh, and the last third of the class, then, we return to the stuff that I taught in my original critical thinking class, informal logic skills, uh, analyzing arguments and evaluating them, uh, and looking to whether they are valid and sound. Uh, and by this time, it's the same strategies I, I always used to use. Um, by that time, the, the deception frame has gotten old and tired and nobody it's lost its, its appeal. And at that point, they are ready for a more systematic approach.
there, at that point, uh, the enthusiasm for that and the amount of people doing their homework and who are still on board for the class is such a major difference uh, than when I taught it before. Uh, and I feel like that's all of that has been an investment for that kind of final payoff. Yes, it's about a third of the time that we used that I would have originally spent on it, but I think they get more out of that that third of the time than they got out of the entire that they would have out of the entire semester before, because critical thinking it's kind of a catch twenty two. You need to have some skill to recognize why it's important, but you're never going to work. It's not easy. It goes against nature. You're never going to do the work to acquire that skill until you see its value. I think one of the powers of this, of this approach of teaching it is that it helps them to see clearly the value. Uh, and then once you see the value for yourself, you don't need a teacher anymore, or at least a teacher is only kind of a bonus. Once you're directing your own learning and you're seeking this out for yourself, that's always the most important uh, thing for a learner anyways. Think of yourself. When, when do you learn something the best? Is it when you are motivated, self-motivated to find it out, when you'd go and learn this, whether or not somebody forced you to, or when you feel compelled by a grade or a curriculum requirement to learn it? Everyone knows that self-directed learning is going gonna, is gonna to pay off the best. And that's really ultimately the goal of the entire class, so that when they leave, uh, that's not the end of their, of their training in informal logic. They're going to continue, hopefully, to seek this out for their own. So I've gone so far over time. So I will just stop right there. Thank you for, uh, thanks for giving us a listen. We do have a few minutes, so I'll come around with the uh, mic if people have comments or questions. Uh, just raise your hand or catch my eye, and I'll get to as many people as possible. I was going to say Jeff St. Fox News, and I'd like to offer half of you a full-time job, but I won't. What I do want to know is, was George Bush a post hoc deceptive genius, or was he just a liar? I mean, how do we know? Well, what do you think? How do we even approach that? I don't know. Pass. <laughs> I, I, not, not taking that one up, but I... It is an interesting question. You always got to wonder, are people really as stupid as they're letting on, or is it part of the act? I don't know. I just wonder if you ever <clears throat> talk about religion in your, in your uh, class, or relate it to the... In this one, um, a little bit. During the paranormal stuff, we talk about faith healing. It, it, this, this, the class is, is actually very much one that doesn't require any kind of philosophical commitment. Uh, of course, I'm a naturalist and I see things that way. Of course, I believe that a lot of these paranormal uh, phenomena, um, prophetic dreams, ESP, several of the uh, other ones that we look at, I don't, I don't believe they're real. But the thing is, the way we teach it, it doesn't require that you not believe that it's real. Uh, all, all, we, all we demonstrate is here, here is one form of deceptive argument how you could get convince somebody to believe this. We're targeting their epistemology more than their metaphysics with this class. And I, I think 
I think if it gets through, it'll make them think better about their own worldviews and, and how they think. But there's no, uh, uh, the last thing I ever want to do uh, is make somebody feel unwelcome because they have a philosophical difference about the nature of existence with me. I could see why you wouldn't want to teach that class in a college, but we would love to have that class about how religions are using this, these techniques <laughs> on, on their congregation. But anyway, my question well, was... that's what my podcast is. So. <laughs> All right. <laughs> go, go to doubtcast.org, and you can, get, you can get 83 hours of how religion <laughs> manipulates you. Um, and my question was... Um, oh, shoot. Yeah, if you're taking any... Uh, since you've started this class, how many years ago did you start it? It was uh, it was in 2008. Actually, it only ran for two years. Okay. Uh, I haven't taught it for the past two years because uh, my department chair passed away, and uh, she was the big supporter for me with this class. And when we got a new one, they were like, oh, we got to cut back on our classes, and... Uh, this just doesn't seem essential. We're not really sure exactly what you're doing. And so no, I'm actually not teaching this anymore. But maybe the audio, I'll use the audio from this to make a, a pitch. Okay, because I was going to say... Next my, summer, Art of yeah. Deception again. My husband just finished his MBA, and I know it's popular now for these MBA programs to put in a mandatory ethics class so they don't, mm. their graduates don't do Enron-type things. So I thought it might be less popular with the school. I should make a comment on ethics. Um, during the con, when we're teaching the con uh, artistry stuff, there's one in there called the Murphy Game Scandal, and that's a prostitution-based scam. You trick somebody into that they purchase a prostitute, and so the pimp or the prostitute, whoever in the lobby of the hotel says, sit here, we're going to make sure everything's cool with the room. They go up, and they walk out a fire escape or something, and the dude's just sitting there and doesn't get his sex. Ha-ha. <laughs> uh, when teaching this con, I got kind of, uh, I'd read into all these things, and, and I love hearing about cons. I love uh, these stories. I love movies like Matchstick Men that, that with con artists. I think it's so neat to see how these things work. So I got kind of enthusiastic. And, uh, um, and so I was saying, you know, part of how this Murphy con game goes in the third world as a lot of times these Western businessmen who go looking to sleep with children when they're traveling overseas, the great way is to get the, actually get them in the room, have the father burst into the room, and he doesn't punch out the guy, he punches out the child. They have a little packet of fake chicken blood, they do a fake punch, they bite it, and blood all over their face. And, <laughs> it's, it's an act, nobody's hurt. The little girl knows they're getting a pony when they get home. But the guy, the guy uses that to extort the person out of as much money as possible because if he's going to do that to his own daughter, what the hell is he going to do to you? You're going to be in a ditch. You're going to be dead somewhere. And I'm saying almost exactly what I'm saying right now here in front of a class. Pale faces, everybody horrified. Little girl, the little girl in the front row looks like she shouldn't be in college yet. I turn, turns out she, she just graduated from high school. This is her very first <laughs> class ever. And two hours into her very first college class, she's getting detailed instructions as to how to extort potential pedophiles out of their money <laughs> in third world contexts. And I stop and I think, I wonder if what I'm doing is morally correct. <laughs> and that was an issue with the class, was to think, because I, I seriously, whoa, I 
seriously do believe that in your moral development, when it comes to character, the quality of your thought is one of the most important aspects uh, of your character. It determines how you behave with others. And so this really does kind of go against um, what I usually teach, what I usually preach, and how I actually think. The thing is, when we get to talking about Bernie Madoff, when we get to talking about these people like John Edwards and the fake comfort they're giving to people, the disgust on people's faces is, is so clear that I, I drop the act. And by the time we get to the end of the class, everybody knew it was an act anyways. And oh, the very last class, we look at uh, uh, Clifford, was, is it William Clifford? Uh, a, an essay from the 1800s called the 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 duty of uh, the duty of skepticism, and uh, and great great essay on the importance of intellectual virtue, and I have a feeling based on some of their class projects and what I hear from the students that it really does it really does make a difference. They know it's an act, and I don't think anybody's actually leaving that class and becoming con artists or anything else like that. Yeah, Jeremy. Ronald Reagan did away with the fairness doctrine, which is, you know, requiring that the opposite side be given an opportunity to challenge something in, uh, in the media. And I'm wondering to what degree the elimination of that, along with the uh, vast increase of the right wing, uh, especially radio media, in combination with that, to what degree that has um, maybe implemented what you've been talking as far as, uh, you know, deceiving people and being able to uh, take a message and manipulate it and uh, to uh, get people, uh, because we have moved right, I think, to a large degree, and I think it, I'm just wondering to what extent those two things played, has played a part and if, how that fits in with what you've been talking about. Yeah, I, I really don't know much about the fairness doctrine. Um, uh, what I do know uh, or feel very strongly about is that we, we, kind of, we have this really bad situation where um, in a way we have more access to information than we ever, ever have and more diverse viewpoints than we ever have. But this also allows us to self-select the information that we're hearing. It plays into confirmation bias. And one of the most important things we can learn, and everyone, uh, depend, regardless of your political perspective, is to actually have the intellectual courage to listen to other viewpoints, uh, to go out and seek uh, the other side. And so um, what I tell the students during, during the more lofty moral portions of the class is that... Uh, I think, you know, first, before you identify yourself as a Republican or a Democrat, before you identify yourself as a Christian or a Jew, before you identify yourself as anything, identify yourself, think of your primary identity as a seeker of truth. Put that first above everything else, and then whatever is worthy should follow that. Good words to end with. Thank you so much. catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at 
publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubt's theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.